Hello. More sirens and nuclear alerts this week. Today we're looking at the terrible morning in Hawaii when the people received a false but credible, believable, 100% official text warning of an incoming missile attack. If you look back in the podcast archives, there's an episode from uh, quite a few years ago now called What Would You Do? And for that episode, I had asked Atomic Hobo listeners to email me and tell me what they'd do if they had heard the four-minute warning. Well, the experience of Hawaii in 2018 shows us that scenario for real. What did people do when they thought a nuclear missile was incoming? When they thought they had about 12 minutes left to live? Speaking of sirens and alerts, um, after last week's podcast on Britain's nuclear sirens, one of my listeners got in touch to tell me he was a boy during the war and remembers hearing the sirens. But he also remembered hearing the cuckoo alert. Now, I had never heard of such a thing, and so I'm glad he got in touch, but I thought I was quite clued up about civil defence and life on the home front during the war, but I'd never heard of the cuckoo alert. So thank you, James, for sharing your memories with me. I did some research on it and uh, last night recorded a podcast about the cuckoo alert, which is available to Atomic Hobo patrons. £3 a month gets you access to all of the bonus podcast episodes I've done. So here's a short clip of the latest one. And if you want to get access to all these extra episodes and support the podcast, please do join us at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Here's a short clip about the cuckoo alert. This one isn't strictly about nuclear war, but I think you'll forgive me if we step slightly outside our subject area for once. This episode is about cuckoo alerts. And no, I hadn't heard of them either until this week. Uh, One of my listeners, um, after hearing last week's episode, Where Have All the Sirens Gone?, sent me an email telling me about his childhood memories of air raids when he lived on the south coast of England during the Second World War. And yes, of course, he would hear the siren, that infamous sound that we all know and dread, but his stretch of the coast would also sound another, separate siren, known as the Cuckoo Alert, or Cuckoo Alarm. So let's find out more about it. And now back to Hawaii. January 13th, 2018. It started as a gorgeous day with a spectacular sunrise. As people across the islands got up, uh, got dressed, got ready for work, uh, for outings and trips to the library or to the beach, their phones suddenly pinged. All across Hawaii, at 8.10am, Mobile phones lit up on desks and bags, on the beach and coffee shops. The wording of this noisy and intrusive text was very plain and simple. It said, Emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Of course, context is everything. We talked in last week's episode about how an emergency text alert surely can have the same impact, the same weight, the same provocation as 
hearing the air around you rent by the dreadful banshee wail of an air raid siren. But remember the context. Back in January 2018, tensions between America and North Korea were high. Only a few months before the alert, back in September 2017, President Trump had boasted that he was ready to, quote, totally destroy North Korea. And he goaded King Jong-un by calling him, quote, a rocket man on a suicide mission. He was also threatening North Korea with, quote, fire and fury like the world has never seen. And as this was going on, North Korea were just conducting nuclear tests. Many commentators and analysts um, argued that North Korea, they might seem foolish to be charging ahead with nuclear tests when it's so clearly aggravating Trump and America, but quoting the Times here, North Korea has a clear strategy and goal to acquire, as fast as possible, the ability to threaten the US mainland with nuclear attacks as an insurance policy upon itself. So there it is, whether you agree or not, we can obviously understand the logic there. It's classic nuclear deterrence. If you nuke us, we'll nuke you. So don't nuke us. (laughs) Sharpening the context even further, Hawaii had recently started monthly air raid drills with sirens. They have tsunami sirens, of course, in Hawaii, but they also have a specific nuclear siren, which has the distinctive rising and falling notes that we all know. Also, the state's emergency planning booklet um, actually had a picture of Kim Jong-un alongside the heading nuclear threat, unlikely but cannot ignore it. So in the midst of this swirl of nuclear tests, nuclear threats and nuclear drills and nuclear sirens, the text alert arrived on that quiet sunny morning. And the context was there to make it seem, of course, totally credible and surely terrifying. In fact, the New York Times reported that some areas of the state actually sounded their nuclear sirens. So there could have been no doubt at all that this thing was real. The text alert didn't tell people what to do. Of course, that's not what it's designed for. It's not an instruction manual. It's a, it's a short, abrupt, easily read alert telling you to take cover. The rest is up to you. <laughs> but I watched a recent BBC documentary about that terrible morning in Hawaii. And one of the eyewitnesses remarked that it's, it's almost pointless telling people to take cover when they live on an island in the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean. Take cover... Where? Go where? There's nowhere to flee except the other end of the island. So the take cover instruction is perhaps futile on an island. It's um, it's like the constant command we kept hearing during the peak of COVID when people would say and tweet all the time, stay safe. But how? How can you stay safe exactly? It's not really within your power to stay safe. All you can do is Try to stay safe, hope to stay safe, but you cannot command yourself, stay safe. Good fortune and chance will always play a bigger role in these crises. But of course a government can't make that the basis of any public awareness campaign. 
Going back to that BBC documentary I mentioned, which is available currently for British viewers on iPlayer, and is called On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, it had some interesting witness testimony from those who were there. And the main responses on receiving the text seemed to be disbelief and also great sadness and regret. I could not believe what I was looking at, said one woman. You had to stare at it for a moment. This is not possible. Others spoke of a sense of helplessness at being unable to reach friends and family in the minutes that remained. And of course, parents immediately thought of their children. How do I reach them in time? And if I do, how do I protect them? One witness said, if this was real, I'd probably never see them again. The documentary tells us that others, and uh, this seemed quite incredible to me, took time to text friends and family to, not to say I love you goodbye, but to ask questions and to query what was going on. Others had the, the calm and the foresight to seek official help and phoned 911. And of course the poor operators on the other end of the line were just as frightened and confused and startled as everyone else. So according to the witnesses in this documentary, the feeling was all one of melancholy. Everyone was wistful. People were staring at the phones and staring at the sky and pondering what it all meant. <laughs> there was only one brief reference to panic when the film quickly said that, almost said it as an awkward aside, or that uh, yes, and some parents um, were throwing their children down storm drains. Some people were flying along the freeway at 100 miles an hour. Others found shelter in solid buildings in town, only to bar the door against others, screaming at them that there was no more room inside, go somewhere else. I wanted to hear more about this, about the panic response, about shoving aside your neighbours so that you can get your kid first into that storm drain, or lock everyone else outside and deny them shelter so that you can feel safe. We've talked about that before in the podcast. I think the episode's called um, Shoot Thy Neighbour. And of course, that was a very uncomfortable debate in America in the 1960s. The whole notion of if you build yourself a private fallout shelter in your garden or in your basement, what do you do when your terrified neighbour who has no such shelter bangs on the door and begs you to save his life and or to save his children's lives and let them in? Do you give up your space, your rations, for people who haven't prepared? Is it the Christian thing to do? To whom do you owe your responsibilities and your duty of care? So I wanted to hear more about that, but no, the documentary lapsed back into um, the soft and the melancholy, it seemed. And instead of footage that day from Hawaii, there was um, lots of weird CGI graphics and lights and patterns. If you've ever played the computer game Tetris Effect, that is what this flimsy, simpering film felt like. I do not recommend it. So let's ditch it and turn to some proper news sources to find out about the panic in Hawaii that day. I want to know more about the people who were acting swiftly and fiercely and were putting their kids in storm drains and piling into buildings for shelter. People who were ruthless enough, or you might say, 
bold and decisive enough to block the door to others. Because that is what's interesting. That takes us to the eternal question in any nuclear war discussion. What would you do? Well, there was 38 minutes for the people of Hawaii to decide what to do. 38 minutes is how long it took for the Hawaiian authorities to correct the false alarm. 38 agonising minutes. And remember, for the people on the ground, this was not a Hawaii incident. They were not experiencing the, the Hawaii false alarm, a Hawaii story. For all they knew, people all over America, all over the world, were getting similar texts on their phones. Because maybe this was it. Maybe people were at that moment in New York uh, running down to the underground. Maybe there was panic in Moscow. Terror in Paris. Maybe London and Washington had already gone. On that morning, for those people, this was not a Hawaii incident as it is now. For all they knew, it was happening everywhere. And we were all in for it together. And this is why I think we need sirens. We must keep our sirens or reinstate our sirens in Britain. Because a siren would alert you to danger and then it would sound again with the all clear when the danger had passed. So that's one option to alert the population and one option to reassure the population. A siren. It can do both. But in Hawaii, it was like technology had given the authorities too many options. When the false alarm went out, by text, they frantically tried to communicate with the population to tell them it was all a mistake, but they did that via social media in the first instance. They were mucking about with silly status updates and tweets because the system did not allow them to send a text saying it was an error, disregard it, all is well. They've since um, arranged for a template text saying that, which can be quickly issued if it ever happens again, But at that moment, it wasn't possible. So they had issued the warning by text and they tried to retract it via tweet. So it was little wonder there was confusion. It was a case of too many cooks spoiling the broth. So in those long 38 minutes, what did people do? There was one party of tourists who were driven on their tour bus up into the hills to an old concrete bunker. Others may do with structures around them which might offer shelter, such as pushing children into storm drains. And uh, in one case, a local politician took her children and they sat together in the bath, huddled together. At a wrestling competition in a local school, Teachers gathered the kids into the centre of the gym hall, away from the windows and the outside walls. And elsewhere across the state, many of the motorways were packed with cars trying to flee, which is the natural human response. But, as we said earlier, where do you flee when you live on an island? Your escape route is naturally going to be restricted. Of course, false nuclear alarms happened throughout the Cold War. It's nothing new. The only thing that's new is how they are communicated. The most famous false nuclear alarm in the Cold War 
is, of course, the Stanislav Petrov incident, where the Russian officer's early warning system mistakenly told him that the Soviet Union was under attack. That was a hugely dramatic moment, and naturally, Netflix have a documentary about it. But I prefer the the story of the solemn, dignified fear of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. He encountered his own terrifying false nuclear alarm at the dead of night back in June 1980. He received a call from his military aide saying, Sir, sorry to wake you, but must inform you that 220 missiles have been launched at America from Soviet submarines. Brzezinski calmly requested confirmation of this. He sat by the phone. His guy called back. Correction, sir, it is actually 2,200 missiles. To quote the great Eric Schlosser in The New Yorker, Brzezinski decided not to wake his wife, preferring that she die in her sleep. Now, that is love, that is love, but it's also the most awesome and solemn bravery. As Brzezinski went to lift the phone to wake up the president, his aide rang back to say, Phew, false alarm. It was later found to have been caused by a dodgy computer chip. So, false nuclear alarms, um, even those immense ones which could have involved waking the president to discuss a retaliatory launch, well, these happened. But the difference was that in the Cold War, they were kept within the White House or the command centre in the Soviet Union. They were kept quiet by tight-lipped men in uniform and they filtered out to us later, much later. They weren't sent by text to every single person in Hawaii. They weren't blurted out instantly. And that's another fault with the current plan to alert us all to an incoming nuclear attack. If a siren was faulty during the Cold War, those good old sirens which obviously I'm in favour of, if a siren was faulty in the Cold War, sure it might go off and frighten the local population, those within earshot, but it couldn't frighten an entire state, an entire country. It would be restricted to those who were within hearing of it. And in Britain, there was no single button which would set off every siren simultaneously. As we discussed last week, local policemen and local vicars, pub landlords, etc. all played their part. Everyone across the country who was involved in the siren network would sound their own group of sirens. There was no one single button or key or switch which turned every siren on and reached everyone and frightened everyone simultaneously. But the Hawaii false alarm system did. One guy pressed the wrong button and the text goes out to everyone and the whole state gets terrified. But if there's one thing we can take uh, some comfort from, it's the fact that the Hawaii false alarm was indeed caused by one single guy. One single guy's innocent mistake. It was not a foreign government or a bunch of hackers seeking to sow panic and then perhaps to prompt people to disregard future genuine warnings. 
We can take comfort in the fact that it was one man pressing one button. The challenge now is to make sure you have a warning system which can't go full alert, crazy, tell everyone just on the say-so of one guy and one button. And before I go, let me thank my latest patrons and a reminder, of course, that the bonus podcast episode about Britain's wartime cuckoo alert and a whole load of other bonus podcasts are available right now for patrons. So if you want to sign up and get those, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my newest patrons. They've signed up in the last week. Riley Walsh, Deborah Hunt and Hannes Hange. I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly, Hannes. And a very kind increase in monthly pledges from Michelle B and John Lane. Thank you, everyone. 